This morning, the question that we're looking at as to the reason that we have hope, the question that you put to us is, uh, is Jesus the only way? And Tom saw fit to give that to me while he was away. I'm here. Oh, there he is. <laughs> well, it gives me the opportunity to thank you in person <laughs> for this easy question. And as I was writing the sermon, I thought this is going to be an hour sermon. I got to try and cut this down. So uh, on the front end, I'm going to tell you, there's, I can't answer every question that, that's going to come up here. I'm going to do my best to address the big questions. And if you have follow-ups, because believe me, there's, a lots, there's lots of follow-up questions you could ask to what I'm going to say here. I get it. Come see me afterwards. Is Jesus the only way? This is a hard question in our culture because when I ask it, just coming out of, out of my mouth, it feels arrogant. It feels uh, tribal. It, it's just offensive to our culture's sensibilities. And we even ask the question, what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the only way? Only way to what? Only way to happiness? Only way to fulfillment? Only way to heaven? Now, you're all here this morning, so I'm going to assume that you have some kind of respect for Jesus or maybe someone who loves Jesus and you're here because they invited you. But we probably have a diversity of answers to that question. Is Jesus the only way and what we think of it and the only way to what? Uh, we have different reasons for looking to Jesus and therefore different understandings re regarding his exclusivity. But perhaps there's a, a more fundamental question that we could ask. Not simply is Jesus the only way, but in this broken world, is there any way, any way of redemption, any way to heaven, any way of fulfillment in, in my life? Now, I know that there are problems in the world. You know there are problems in the world, problems with institutional structures, uh, relationships. There's, there's, there's a problem with me. I'm not right. And in this broken life and world for my broken and twisted soul, is there any way? Is there any way for redemption? Now, at least one of the disciples had thought this question through, and his answer guided him through some pretty rough waters in Jesus' ministry. And that brings us to John chapter 6, our main passage for this morning. The context of this passage of Jesus' interaction with his disciples is that many people had been following Jesus. Uh, they were really excited about what he was saying. They resonated with him, freedom for the captives, you know, the commotion at the temple where he really stuck it to the powers that be for, for corrupting the temple worship. Uh, he's talking about God's love for the world and the lost. Everybody's down with that. They, they really are excited about it. But now Jesus starts saying things which are hard. They have they offend their sensibilities. He's saying things like, or at least implying he's equal with God. He starts talking about the need to feed on his body and, and, and his blood, which was offensive to the Jews who, who were told in their law that they should not have blood mixed with their meat, aside from the fact that they're talking about cannibalism, uh, or at least that's what they understood him to be saying. This, this was really offensive to them. And what's going on is Jesus is beginning to challenge them. He's beginning to sort of push in for them to think not so literally about things, um, but to think spiritually about them. And he's making them feel uncomfortable. And they didn't like that. 
How many of you came here this, don't raise your hands, I'm just asking this rhetorically. How many of you came here this morning saying, you know, I want to be made to feel uncomfortable. That's why I go to church. So for them, Jesus has stopped being the way to their desired outcome. Let's read the scriptures. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless that it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord and Father, we come to you this morning with a very difficult question, particularly for our culture. Are you the only way? And we pray that by your spirit, you would work in and among us, revealing to us what it is you want us to see from your scripture this morning. And impressing upon us your grace and mercy. And as, as has already been prayed, Lord, we, we ask that in the, in the reading of this, in the contemplation of it, and through the working of your spirit, we would be left changed and made more like Jesus when we leave here than when we came. We pray it in his powerful name. Amen. Jesus asked, will you walk away as well? And Peter answers, to whom shall we go? Now, some of you might be saying, okay, the pastor's getting ready to make the very typical argument, Jesus is the only way. Some might say, well, it's his job. Some might say, yes, it's typical evangelical arrogance and maybe even ignorance as he makes the argument. Now, I, I want to tell you that I'm not trying to make an argument per se this morning. Uh, what I want to do is explore the question with you and tell you some of my own story as I explored the question and hopefully leave you with something to consider. Again, Peter asked, to whom shall we go? Uh, I grew up as a Christian. Some of you know my story. I grew up as a Christian, but not in the Christian bubble. I grew up in the Northeast, and, and uh, uh, I wasn't in an evangelical community. I had a Christian faith, but I was surrounded by people who thought really differently, even about the Christian faith. I had friends who were who were uh, Catholic, I had friends who were Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, and I spent my childhood uh, interested in those different perspectives and asking questions of my friends and entertaining questions from my friends, but I never really questioned my own faith. Uh, it was a source of strength for me growing up. I got involved with ministry when I was in high school and then in college I went to go work for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the campus of Penn State and Dickinson College. I went to seminary because I wanted to do this the rest of my life, and I wanted to be trained for it. In the, pro, in, in the midst of all that, I got married, and then in my last year in seminary, accepted a call to start a campus ministry at the University of South Carolina. 
And right after I accepted that call, I went with a couple of students from Washington University to go see the movie, movie Hamlet. Uh, maybe you can remember years ago, Kenneth Branagh's adaptation of Hamlet. And I left that movie undone. I saw the gravedigger scene where Hamlet sees the skull of the jester Yorick. And I thought to myself, someday that's going to be me. What if I'm wrong? Why that question never hit me the way it was hitting me that night, I don't know. But I can tell you, there was this flood of questions coming in. The the questions my friends had asked me all through childhood, and they came in with a poignancy that I had never experienced before. Um, What really happens when we die? How can I be confident in what the Bible is saying? Is there really any hope for love and justice in this world, and it would keep me awake at night. I would be there staring at the ceiling, working out what the point of life was if there was no God, if Jesus wasn't real, thinking at some point that I was going to die, and I wouldn't even recall the joys or pains of this life because I wouldn't exist. And in the midst of questioning the foundation of my career, my marriage, the existence of God, where can I go for answers? To whom shall I go for comfort here? Perhaps there are no answers. And I started this nine-month angst-ridden journey of looking for and testing answers and of rediscovering not simply my faith, but the person of Jesus Christ. Let me put that aside for a second. Just know that's background. Let's go back to this question. Is Jesus the only way? Now, I could lay out a very careful argument from Scripture, and I could cite uh, Scriptures from all kinds of places. In fact, you'll see a lot of them on the screen. Uh, Old Testament prophets, uh, passages from the Gospels, New Testament writings. It could be Moses, Isaiah, the apostles, Paul himself, uh, Jesus himself. It's all over the place in the scriptures. Now, some scholars would say, well, the scriptures are corrupted. Jesus never said those things himself. He never claimed to be the only well. And they say this despite the fact that the only historical records we have of Jesus' life did claim these things. The testimony of the, of the early church is consistent with these records. The surrounding culture responded to Jesus as if he were making exclusive claims. Why would you think otherwise? If there is ever an example of emotional commitments trumping intellectual capacity, that this would be it. You don't see it because you don't want to see it. Jesus said these things. The real problem is we don't want Jesus to say these things. It offends us. It offends our sensibilities. And so perhaps maybe some of you Struggle with Jesus. Maybe you want to turn away from Jesus because of it. Maybe our culture turns away from Jesus because of that exclusivity. Just as his early followers turned away from him when they were offended. Or perhaps there's some other intellectual or emotional crisis that you're going through that causes you to question and doubt Jesus. Just like like, like I was experiencing uh, that last year in seminary. So let's just set Jesus aside for a moment. To whom shall we go? 
reminded them of that moment of decision uh, in the book of Joshua where they enter the promised land and Joshua basically says to them in chapter 24, if you don't want to serve God, choose this day whom you will serve. And we have to ask, ask ourselves that question too. If we're not really going to serve Jesus, if we're not going to put our faith in Jesus, the Jesus who, as he claims to be, as he reveals himself, what, where will we go? To whom will we go? Where will we put our trust? Well, one way of answering or approaching these questions is the way of nothing. There's no God, no salvation, nothing beyond uh, this life. Um, I think we're a little bit behind in our slides here. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very behind in the slides here. Arguments for the ways of the world. There we are. Keep going. The way of nothing. No God, no salvation, <clears throat> nothing beyond this life. Sam Harris uh, is one of the leading voices for atheism and is considered a member of what has been called the uh, four horses of the new atheism with Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and uh, Christopher Hitchens. Now, Sam Harris is an eloquent a writer in pointing out some of the problems with organized religion. <clears throat> but this way of nothing has its own exclusivity. This is what he writes. Atheism is not a philosophy. It's not even a view of the world. It is simply a refusal to deny the obvious. Unfortunately, we live in a world in which the obvious is overlooked as a matter of principle. So this is uh, Sam Harris's way of saying that uh, those who deny the obvious is not someone worth taking seriously. And of course, there is no God. That's obvious. Uh, I think it's interesting that he says that while he himself is denying uh, some really hard questions, uh, um, the problem of reality, the fact that there is something as opposed to nothing. Uh, scientists more and more are beginning to say <clears throat> that our universe seems to be fine-tuned not just for life, but for existence at all. Uh, one example is that, and I'll get a little scientific here for you, so if you can't follow it, it's okay. But scientists are saying things like this. If the efficiency of diffusion from, from hydrogen to helium were either slightly greater or slightly less, either hydrogen would be the only substance in the universe, or there would be no hydrogen at all in the universe, which means there would be no, star there would be no stars. And therefore... No solar system and no earth and no life. Sam Harris seems to reject this as nonsense. So, if I am not supposed to take seriously someone who rejects the obvious, am I supposed to take Sam Harris seriously? And I would say yes. But for reasons that he would reject out of hand, I need to take him seriously because he is made in the image of God. And beyond that, he, he's a person of great accomplishments. He's a, he's a husband. He's a father. And in fact, when asked about what he would teach his children about the nature of reality, this is what he said. As a parent, it's my responsibility to equip my child to do this, to grieve when grief is necessary, and to realize that life is still profoundly beautiful and worth living, despite the fact that we inevitably lose one another and, life, and that life ends and we don't know what happens after death. 
So what he is advocating here is brief contemplation of life followed by the infinity of non-existence, an infinity that can't even register that I once was. This is the best that atheism has to offer. I respect Sam Harris and his scholarship, but there are no answers here. What about the answers that the religions of the world offer? What about Islam, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Shinto, the list goes on. And here I just have, I mean, I was general before. Now I have to be super general. I cannot answer all the variations in in one sermon about the answers that the world's religions give. I mean no offense by being overly general. But I would say that religions fall into two basic categories, those that envision no judgment and those that do envision judgment. So religions that don't envision any judgment, they, they, they think of the afterlife as, as a continued existence on a different plane of existence. There's no reckoning, there's no accountability. A new age spirituality moves in this direction. Vague notions of, of spirituality generally have this, this idea, which I would say is great for me, but not great for the people that I hurt in this life. Mercy is awesome for me. No accountability is awesome for me, but when you hurt me, I want accountability for you, right? It can't be both ways. The, the, the idea that there is no final judgment, there's no final assessment of any sort whatsoever seems unjust. What about the religions that do have judgment in them? And I would say most world religions do believe in judgment. Even Buddhism has a certain form of of judgment. Even even religions that have a reincarnation aspect to it have an assessment at the end of life to either you move on to a higher form of life or a lower form of life. There's a judgment there. There's an affirmation of some standard. And either I meet it and I attain heaven or I fail and I face judgment. Now, my reading of history, my listening to the experience of others, my own experience of the world, my own experience of myself tells me that we all fall short. Way short. We don't like the news of judgment. Perhaps we insist that we meet the standard. Or if not us, at least we know somebody that can meet the standard. I remember talking with a fraternity brother many, many years ago. He's now an accomplished surgeon in New York City. And he's at Mount Sinai Hospital there. I won't use his real name because you, he has a very distinct name. You could look him up, and I don't want you to look him up. Call him Sanjay. He was East Indian in background and Hindu nominally. I was having a conversation with him late night around a dinner table uh, in our fraternity house, and maybe he had had one drinks too many. Uh, but we were talking about life, faith, accountability, and we got to judgment and, and, uh, and Jesus Christ. And he started to get agitated with me as I was explaining to him what I believe. And he said, say what you want about me, but my grandmother is the kindest and nicest person ever. There's no way you're going to tell me that she's going to hell. You ever had a conversation like that before? It's tough. What do you say? 
expresses our sense of uh, fairness about heaven and hell, doesn't it? I was reading something from a, a website called Religious Tolerance, and this is, what it, this is what it said about these issues of judgment. If trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior is the only route to salvation, then 98% of East Indians and 99% of Saudi Arabians will automatically remain unsaved. Most liberals consider such a fate to be incompatible with a loving and just God. And we feel, we feel the, the pinch of that statement. But I would respectfully suggest that what they mean by just is really best expressed by the word fair. It's incompatible with their understanding of a loving and fair God. That some get saved and others don't. But justice, really justice is this, that none of us get saved. That's justice. We all should be punished. Unless you can prove that the balance of all your actions and motivations have earned you heaven. Unless you're certain you can do enough. And if you want to play that game, I can spend five minutes with you asking you just simple, straightforward questions about your life, about your past romantic relationships, about your marriage, about how you treat your children, about your conduct at work, for you to, be, to start doubting your own righteousness and to really start disliking me. We can be selfish, even cruel, to the people we say we love. We manipulate our spouses into satisfying our own desires. We manipulate even our children. Pick whatever religion you like. Can you meet the standard? So my response to Sanjay went something like this. Okay, let's put your grandmother aside. Let's just say she's a saint. What about you? Can you do enough? Because I know I can't. And I need a savior. Which leaves those honest among us with the prospect of facing judgment. If we're really honest. Unless there is mercy. But it can't be a mercy that ignores justice. It can't be a mercy that simply turns a blind eye to wrongdoing. Where God says, don't worry, I understand. You're not perfect. Because now we're back to no accountability and no justice. So where is the answer? The nothingness of atheism doesn't seem to cohere really with our understanding of the universe. Even scientists, many scientists are saying that today. If there's no final judgment, that seems to say there's no justice. In humanity, we need justice. And therefore, we need mercy as well. But an indiscriminate mercy undermines justice. What philosophical or religious answer holds justice and mercy together? The only religion, maybe the better way to put it, is the only person that I know who holds together justice and mercy is Jesus Christ. I love and respect my friends who have different beliefs. I have read and respect the wisdom in the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran and Buddhist texts and the Vedas and, and other religious texts of the world. I've even read the modern philosophers and say there's a lot there to, to, to really wrestle with. But I have never come across anyone even remotely like Jesus. 
in any of those texts. In moral wisdom and the espousal of love, yes, there are parallels. But in being the God who holds together justice and mercy in his coming and sacrificing himself to uphold both, there are no parallels. So whatever offense I may have had to the exclusive claims of Christ, whatever doubts I've had about Christ, that that gave way to the truth that the ways of the world really were no answers at all. And Jesus wasn't being arrogant and saying he's the only way. He was being merciful and saying there is no other way. And the words of Peter begin to stand out as they never have before. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, my journey to rediscovering who Jesus really was wasn't easy. And at times I felt like a complete hypocrite for accepting a call to, to Christian ministry when I was distraught with doubt about Jesus. But as I worked through the questions with patient friends, and I did, I had some friends who were apologists, a guy named Tom Gibbs in particular is a church planner in San Antonio. I remember walking around Balkan Estates Covenant Seminary, just firing all these questions at him that I possibly could, and impatiently walking through that with me, walking through this with an incomprehensibly patient and understanding wife. This is our first year of marriage. I went from feeling like I was um, sure out of luck, SOL. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to seeing again that I was redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ, who alone could save me. And what I gained in the process was a deep understanding of the stress and the angst and the deep desire, desire for vindication that most people feel every day of their life. And if you're here and you, you don't know what to make of Jesus, I'm not here to criticize you or to judge you. I sympathize with whatever efforts you're making to bring meaning to your life. I really do. But I want you to consider something that I think will and indeed I think is the only thing that can bring redemption to your life. That is Jesus Christ, the only way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your word again and to consider very hard questions. And we pray that by your spirit, you would have worked through this very cursory treatment of this subject. But Lord, reveal yourself to these people. Would you reassure those that are faltering in their faith and questioning and doubting? Would you... For those that are, want to know who Jesus is, would you reveal him to them? Spirit of God, work powerfully among us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.